Gotham City, like any other large metropolis, abounds in girls of all shapes and sizes. Debutantes, nurses, stenographers, and librarians. Gotham City Library, Miss Gordon speaking. Lopez hair removal, this is Jose. Holy transformation. One minute, plain Barbara Gordon, librarian and Commissioner Gordon's daughter. And the next minute, something new has been added. Batgirl, modeled after her idol, Batman. Holy apparition! No, boy wonder, I'm Batgirl. You are no longer alone, Cape Crusader. It took me three years to track down the Jade Gatto, and three more to figure out how to steal it. Funny, it only took me ten minutes to figure out how to snatch it back. No matter how you do it, crime doesn't pay girls. Barbara Gordon Podcast, episode 35 for February MMXII. Episode 35 is brought to you by this public service announcement. Turkey, now we might lose. Hold on there. Flint! Will yelling at Billy help? Not really. Look, if you want to play your best, you got to play like a team. Next time you get angry over a bad play, remember you need teamwork to win, not arguments. Now we know. And knowing is half the battle. G.I. Joe! Batgirl to Oracle is also brought to you by MileHighComics.com, your new and collectible comic book store. Mile High Comics has an inventory of over 5 million comics from the gold, silver, bronze, and modern age, and over 100,000 trade paperbacks. If you're not into the vintage stock, Mile High Comics also has a subscription service called the New Issue Comics Express, offering a discounted price for comics ready to hit the shelves. Examples of the prices you may encounter are April's Batgirl No. 9 and Birds of Prey No. 9, both for $2.69. So if you're looking for vintage back issues or a great modern subscription service, be sure to check out milehighcomics.com. Well, before we get into the meat of the episode, I do have a few potatoes to get through. Uh, some very brief news. It, it wasn't enough, really, to, to warrant my good friend Kimberly Rockmore to come in, and she is soaking up the, the rays in this very strange February. Uh, again, uh, down in Florida, so... Uh, good for her. A change from the previous episode, I had been uh, promoting this upcoming interview with Dwayne Straczynski, the current writer of Birds of Prey, and I had said that it was going to be this month, but when we were actually setting up the date for this interview this month, he said, what would you think about waiting until March, because that way the arc, this first arc would actually be done. So for those of you that have not had a chance to write in a question or just just have forgot perhaps, now you have until Birds of Prey comes out in mid-March. So we will be doing the interview after that. Huntress is going to be ending soon. This episode I will be reviewing number five and then in March I will be reviewing episode I'm sorry and then in March I will be reviewing issue number six which is the final issue and after that I'm actually going to be picking up with reviews of Huntress and Power Girl in World's Finest and that will be beginning in May so I'm hopeful that that is going to be a high quality book it's written by Paul Levitz so 
we'll see, I guess. But you know, I I still feel a dedication to to the bird, um, whether she was a bird only in the previous DC or not. Um, I think it'll still be a good book to follow. I also would like you guys to be sure that you pick up Brian Q. Miller's. Uh, Smellville Season 11, and that's going to start coming out in May as well, so be sure to put that on your pull list. And so this is going to be a comic, and really in the vein of Buffy Season 8, where Buffy finished, and then the Season 8 was was a comic, you know, actually written by Joss Whedon, and, you know, just picking up where where the show left off, and, and Season 11 actually picks up right after Clark puts on the the red and blue tights for the first time. And not only was I an avid Smallville watcher, watched all ten seasons, but it's Brian Q. Miller, people. Uh, You definitely want to support him and all of his endeavors. Another issue I know that a lot of you have been having is with BackRollToOracle.net. Many of you have probably, throughout the past couple months, I think, gone on and received this warning from Google or from any other uh, virus warning agency that uh, my site had malware on it, and it's it's been a reported attack site. I just want you to know that all the malware is gone. Google has taken off those warnings, so we are good to go. And I've learned what the problem was. Basically, uploading images to WordPress, WordPress is, puts it on its own server, and those servers are very easy to attack. And so they were just going through there. So I've deleted all of those um, those images, all of the things that potentially had that malware code on it and I've learned my lesson and I do apologize for the inconvenience and I apologize to poor Dustin from the BatmanUniverse.net because I was sort of dragging his website down along uh, with mine. So you can definitely log back on. The RSS feed is back up. I know that was such a frustration and headache that my episodes are not showing up on iTunes and people are wondering what was going on and I know that those that do not listen to the episodes on iTunes were frustrated because the RSS feed was not working so we are all good you know knock on wood hopefully for the foreseeable future this should not happen now that we all know (laughs) what happened and the final little bit of news is actually really exciting. Uh, the Super Best Friends Forever on Cartoon Network Saturday mornings, uh, short uh, for Super Best Friends Forever is SBFF. So Saturday mornings are super again, hearkening back to the glory days, the 1970s and 80s, uh, when kids got their weekends going with Super Friends and Schoolhouse Rock, Cartoon Network is launching DC Nation. And I'm sure many of you have already seen little snippets of uh, the tiny teen titans and things like that. The DC Nation is going to be a programming block that showcases the heroes of the DC Comics Library. Anchoring the hour will be the CGI show Green Lantern, the animated series, at 10 a.m. This is Eastern. And then the continuation of the first season of Young Justice at 10.30. Scattered throughout the hour are animated shorts and interstitials with news and vignettes from around the DC Universe. Although some of the shorts feature big names like Superman and Batman, many will put the spotlight on characters we've always wanted to see animated, but that might not be able to support a whole series, says Peter Giardi, Senior Vice President at Warner Brothers Animation, which is coordinating the block. Among the second-tier characters featured are Black Lightning, Dr. Fate, the Doom Patrol, and even Vibe, a short-lived Latino member of the Justice League in the 80s. A humorous tone runs throughout all the shorts, including SBFF, which is short for Super Best Friends Forever, which stars Batgirl, Supergirl, and Wonder Girl, and has plenty of action and fighting, but is really much more focused on comedy and laughs and how much it is, how much fun it is to be a superhero, says producer Lauren Faust. It's like taking a teenage experience but putting a superhero spin on it. In one episode, Supergirl and Batgirl try to convince Wonder Girl to sneak out in Wonder Woman's invisible jet to go for a joyride. Guess even Supergirls just want to have fun. So each SBFF short runs just over a minute, and it's just like telling a visual joke, uh, says Lauren Faust, the producer. So I'm pretty excited about this, just to see. I mean, I, you know, it's supposed to be fun, but I hope it's not, like, the fun where, oh, man, this is dumb. Why am I wasting my 60 seconds on it? But, you know, I saw one of the the newest and probably only fully released short of the Teen Titans, and it still had the heart, you know, of the Teen Titans show that we had seen on Cartoon Network several years ago. So I'm, I am hopeful. But you can check out the image that they have. This was taken from TV Guide. You can see uh, Batgirl, Supergirl, and Wonder Girl. 
and just the it should be good. I mean, it'll be great to see Batgirl, and if people write in, perhaps, or are really pumped about this, then maybe there's still a chance for Batgirl Year One. You know, there. I will always keep on hoping for that. That is it for the news. Again, write in and ask me a question to ask Dwayne Swarzynski. You know, I generally put together a pretty thorough outline for interviews, but there are always things that slip my mind that are really good uh, thematic questions or uh, character-driven questions that I just forget to ask. So please write that in. And uh, don't worry about the malware because it's gone and RSS feed is up. So happy podcast listening from me. I do have a few comments from the previous few episodes. First is from Mike. Hey, Stella, just another fan here to say what a great job you're doing. I enjoy your podcast so much. I find it to be entertaining and informative on all things Batgirl. It's easy to see that you are dedicated and hardworking. I hope you continue to produce great content for your fans. Sincerely, your fan, Mike. Oh, Mike, thank you so much. I'm glad that, yeah, entertaining and informative, definitely, that's what I want it to be. I want it to be fun, and I want people to learn, and I'm learning, so I hope that you guys are as well. And it's two years, of course, we just celebrated that anniversary, so it's it's still, you know, the little, the little thing that, that made it happen somehow. From Steve J. Rogers, hey, Stella, from the Ben meaning to get this to you months ago and finally reminded about it department concerning the discussion with josh and don about what babs would think about ebook readers and the like as a librarian well something tells me the character should her being a librarian ever come back to being canyon would be akin to this real life librarian who is the wife of a cyber friend of mine ironically a redhead basically on the cutting edge of technology and how it should be adapted in libraries I could see Barbara writing a blog like that, or at least be inclined to implement technology and make sure the staff at the library she worked slash worked at was up to the standard in using the tech, something that my own town's library seems to have been lacking throughout the years. Yeah, um, that was it was a tough question. It was a really good one. I'm not sure who prompted this. It may have been Josh, but would she be up for ebook readers or not? And it's tough because obviously ebook readers very technologically based, and that goes to her side as Oracle. But then books. I mean, it's just so great. And I had a discussion with this, uh, with about this with a, a student of mine, and we just we really sort of had this harm, harmonic idea that yeah, it's all about you know holding the book in your hand and everything and you really can't get away from that you know I have digital comics but again I just really like you miss a lot of details I feel I feel like after I read them in print I am better able to think of my ideas and my thoughts and gather other ideas that maybe more of a stretch but certainly related just I don't know you just miss certain details I think it's it's tough though, you know, would she like the print format or the digital age? And you know, we're leaning more towards a digital age, digital age as a world and I just hope we never get to the point where it's like Fahrenheit four fifty one. Also from Steve, finally getting to listen to episode 33 and running just how in the hell I was writing to Batman family from Lubbock, Texas, home of Buddy Holly, in the summer of 1977 when I was crawling around a house in the Bronx, New York at the time, born February 12, 1977. <laughs> and why on earth would I waste a letter to D.C. asking about putting multiple letters in the same envelope? Incidentally, I've been getting the new issues of Background Birds via DC Digital app, so I haven't been able to check out the physical copies. But I know before the relaunch, DC was making an effort to return the letters pages to the books. Digital copies are essentially just the collected version of the stories, with the covers as the only representation of the comic as it was presented when it was released. No ads or other non-story content. So how have the modern letters for Batgirl and Birds been? Any chance to integrate them into the reviews? It's going to sound really bad, but I don't think that they, and this is, I can only say thank, I don't think they've started the letters pages yet for for Batgirl or Birds of Prey, and I would feel worse about not knowing that for Birds of Prey than Batgirl, because once I finish the issue, the current issue of Batgirl, 
I my mind is usually very weak, so it's understandable that I don't know that. But I could potentially, you know, integrate those into the reviews if um, if people would like those. Uh, I don't, you know, the great thing about the older letters is just that they're kooky characters. Uh, but these, I f- I don't know. I feel like I may get upset because they're real people and they're writing in and and probably really praiseworthy of everything that's going on. And what if I disagree? Am I going to yell at them? I don't know, but you know, it would be good to keep it have to continue to have similarities between the old issues and the new issues. So I'll see, I'll see what uh, what I dig up. Well, thanks, Steve, for writing in. Next up, we have Cool B. Greetings and salutations, Stella. iTunes finally let me download episodes again. Yes, this is one of those people that was unfortunately on the wrong end of the iTunes um, and just finished number. Th- 33 and 34. Both shows were great as usual, and while I don't have any specific thoughts on 33, I do have some on 34. It isn't an exact duplication, but there is a bit of parallel staging of the kiss between Jon Stewart and Shiera, or their flashback counterparts, in Wild Cards and Ancient History, which I think is a nice touch. Speaking of ancient history, I wonder if anyone saw that when it originally aired. I know I didn't. In fact, I could be wrong, but I don't think I saw that episode until I picked up the DVDs. And Batman, being Batman, must have known Wild Cards would be a top finish in the Shipper special, since he used his knowledge of Harley's shipping of herself and Mr. J to get her to lead him to the Joker. Also, the vote regarding Shire at the end of Starcross didn't end in a tie. Jon Stewart didn't vote due to his personal feelings for her. Wonder Woman and Batman voted to kick her off. Flash and Jean voted to let her stay, and Superman cast the tie-breaking vote, ultimately voting to let her stay, but she flew off before she could be told this. Fly on, Babs, and Jon Stewart slash Shire lover. Cool B. Yeah, you're completely right about that. I wondered how I... I don't know. I must just forget John Jones sometimes, Martian Manhunter. Uh, but you are completely right that I messed up that tally because I thought I remembered when she came back, um, awakening, that you know Superman comes and says that uh, he broke the tie and that they wanted her to be on there and that that was the way that they brought her back on the team. But my numbers did not add up with that. And I like that thought about the uh, the parallel staging of the kiss. I guess kisses one in wild cards and then this the next one in ancient history because wild cards yeah they're sitting together and then um, her mask comes off and they kiss and then in ancient history she takes off her own mask and then they kiss so yeah uh, that is a good uh, pull right there for sure well remember you can always write in and ask an, any question or give me constructive criticism or praise you know whatever works for you by writing to backgirl to oracle at gmail.com okay i'm actually pretty excited about uh this old issue here it is so ridiculous and zany that it's amazing in this zaniness oh so adventure comics number 453 you too can be a superhero its street date, or I guess its publishing date, is September, October 1977. Writer Bob Rizakis, art John Kalnan and Murphy Anderson, colorist Liz Berube. Also included in this issue is Aqualad, who is thy father. So the issue begins with, or at a camp... There's a girl struggling to swim in the water. There's a guy coming towards her. There's a group of kids on this, uh, on the bank of the water. Basically, it's a lake. And then we have Superboy swooping down. And luckily, Bob Rosakis, uh gives us some help here. Instant explanation department. Superboy has just returned from the 30th century, and not a moment too soon. Since a happy two weeks at Camp Smallville for city kids is on the verge of being marred, uh, as a young girl struggles to stay afloat until help arrives. Just who that young girl is, we challenge you to guess, reader, as you read this saga of an 11-year-old adventuress who answers the command, you too can be a superhero. 
Okay, so Superboy swoops in to save this little girl from drowning and puts on a show with her at the same time. Back on dry land, the little girl's big brother scolds her for being irresponsible, but she does not pay much attention since Superboy was there to save her. Superboy flies off and his friend Pete Ross makes note that he will be returning soon as Clark Kent, though Clark is unaware that Pete knows. Superboy flies to Kent's general store where Jonathan and Martha Kent are stocking their shop. Superboy, now in the guise of Clark Kent, quickly aids them, then speeds off back to the camp. Meanwhile, the little girl who nearly drowned earlier is having a hissy fit when her big brother and camp counselor, Anthony, tells her to stay in her room. The girl says that she would not save her brother if she had superpowers and then wishes more than anything to be gifted with similar powers as Superboy. Luckily for her, Superboy's last adventure with the Legion left him with the mystic crystal in his cape, one which responds to thought waves and will soon grant the wish to the girl. Clark makes the acquaintance of Tony, the girl's brother, as they talk about the rescue made by Superboy. Pete comes up with the idea to take some of the older kids camping overnight, and Clark agrees that somewhere near Haunted Falls would be ideal, so that they can learn the ghostly legend of the falls. Lana Lang has a bad feeling about it, and doesn't agree, but she is, of course, outvoted. Tony visits his sister, who happens to be reading a book about women in politics, and tells her that she also will be going on the hike. Fast forward to the night with the campers around the campfire, the little girl reading, and Lana telling a story about explorers long ago. As Lana continues the story of Ross Peterson and Kensington Clark, Clark and Pete throw on sheets and walk across the stream in order to frighten the campers. The little girl, hearing the screams, goes to the rescue and becomes Mighty Girl. One punch throws Clark into the falls, which gives him an opportunity to turn into Superboy. He protects Pete from Mighty Girl's mighty blow, but in the panic, campers tip over the campfire, causing the fire to spread. Mighty Girl erringly blows on it, which does not work out for her. Superboy does a super cannonball, which douses everything with water. Mighty Girl threatens to wish for even more powers, and Clark suddenly realizes how the girl got the powers in the first place. He quickly throws Mordru's crystal into the sun, and just as quickly as they appeared, Mighty Girl's powers disappear. Tony comforts his sister, and Superboy gives her words of encouragement. You can't have superpowers by wishing, by magic. You've got to work, develop your own skills, and by working really hard, someday you too can be a superhero. The girl replies, Okay, Superboy, I'm really going to try, and someday you're going to be hearing about Barbara Gordon, superheroine. Shocker! But, you know, did you catch the clues scattered throughout the issue? So some of the clues I found, and I just wonder how many they actually and intentionally put in this issue. You've got the reading the book. Number one, librarian loves books. That would be the first clue. But then if you see what the cover of the book is, women in politics. You know, she's Congressman Gordon right now. So, okay, so that's kind of two. Her brother talking about having a civil servant for her father. That's three, though that one would be tougher. But obviously since Gordon would have been, I don't know, he probably would have only been a captain back at this point in time. So that's three. Just having, you know, a brother named Anthony, if you remember him from Batman Family number 12, the the brother of Batgirl and that zany story, and he's writing a letter to her, and then he burns it. So Anthony, that's three. Um, perhaps the coloring of her outfit, uh, a blue shirt and bluish slash gray pants, kind of hearkening back to her, her uh, gray and blue getup. Uh, originally, and then of course, so that's four, and then of course the the red hair and the glasses. So four clues. I just wonder if there were any others. Uh, if you catch any of them, yeah, write in and let me know which ones you think may have been, I may have missed. I found the bikini that little Babs uh, was wearing as kind of revealing for an 11-year-old. And then uh, I also was aghast, simply aghast, at Superboy using his super breath on the backside of Babs to levitate her into the air. So this is after he rescues her. He's like in the water doing some sort of backstroke. He's blowing up and like you could just see like her bottom basically and floating her. What? Doesn't that seem wrong to you? Uh. Uh, but this premise was really fun. You know, sure it was extreme happenstance to have Superboy, you know, have that crystal uh, but it all did connect to a previous story which was good to at least tie it down 
I didn't really understand why Mighty Girl was fighting Superboy, someone who rescued her. But then, you know, I thought that this is probably her just being upset at, at constantly being underestimated and just thought of as a kid. So her really lashing out. It's interesting to see her inexperience, Mighty Girls, up against the experience of Superboy. And this is really all found in this spreading fire because she tries to help but doesn't really think about the consequences of that. And then he quickly uh, fixes her mistake and the, the fire. I liked the motivational speech at the end. It really makes Superboy look like the Boy Scout he is, because we all know that Superman's a Boy Scout, and it adds a nice moral to the story. It also shapes little Babs in her future, how fun it is to think that they, you know, they've worked before their run-ins in Washington. Um, it's just great to give them a backstory. I especially love the final panel with little Babs making a vow and having the backdrop of Batgirl behind her. I do, however, have to admit that when I first read her vow, I thought it said Gordon Barbara Gordon, and I nearly collapsed. And uh, I'm sure Josh Bertone will be shaking his fist at that. But seriously, uh, just glancing down really quickly, it almost seemed like that. You know, this is just a really fun and awesome story. It's almost like an untold tale, which I know a lot of Marvelites will uh, know what that is. Uh, it was just great to see Babs and Tony. You know, Tony has a short-lived biography in the DC universe anyways. But, you know, Clark, Pete, and Lana as well. I liked that Clark and Pete were carrying on the tricks that they experienced long ago because that's, you know, that how that is how it works. I was in the marching band for five years in high school, and the seniors, they had a lot of privileges, obviously, and there was always initiation of the newcomers, and it was always safe, of course. It wasn't hazing. It was just, it was always a senior privilege, and so, you know, when it's finally your turn, you're very excited about this. But, you know, enough about me. This, not out of 9.5 out of 10 bats, I almost gave it um, a 10 out of 10. I don't know if it's a perfect story, but it is, it's zany, it's fun. I think you should definitely try to pick this up, Adventure Comics number 453. Well, when I come back, I will review Background number 5, Birds of Prey number 5, and Huntress number 5. Uh, but for right now, let's take a little break and enjoy Zias's Radio Hour featuring a request sent in by Steve J. Rogers himself, Miracles by the Rockin' Pontoons. Hey, this is Bane. Listen to this promo for the BatmanUniverse.net or I'll break you. The BatmanUniverse.net. Your source for all things related to the Dark Knight, including the latest news related to the comics, movies, TV, merchandise, video games, and much more. Each month, an assortment of podcasts are produced, including a bi-monthly comic podcast, special commentaries and interviews, the Batman Universe specials, and a podcast which delves into TV, movie, merchandise, video game news, and beyond. Keep up to date with everything about Batman, get to know the kooky and lovable casts of the podcasts, Listen to in-depth conversations about the latest direct-to-video movies and increase your knowledge about the Dark Knight and his family only at thebatmanuniverse.net. I'm Dustin from thebatmanuniverse.net and I approve this message.
that you are now dressed in your mighty girl outfits with your purple boots and gloves and your pigtails and uh, prepare yourselves people gird your loins it is time for bat girl number five a candy full of spiders writer gail simone pencil ardian siaf inker vicentes fuentes and colorist ulysses areola the issue opens with Batgirl flying towards the scene of an accident, speaking of ghosts. She doesn't believe in them, but she has felt like one twice in her life. Once when she woke up in the hospital after being shot, and then later after waking up after the neural implant surgery that would allow her to walk again. It seems like there are many ghosts coming out of the closet now, with the Whitaker mob suddenly resurfacing after going underground. These four men ask everyone to get out of their cars, constantly repeating 338 and asking for $3.38. The people on the bridge are justifiably confused, but before the Whitakers can kill them, Batgirl goes to work, avoiding their guns and no longer afraid of bullets. The three Whitakers' sons are incapacitated, but the father shoots them all and then jumps over the side of the bridge. Batgirl throws a line and catches Whitaker, and as she is struggling to pull him up, she is cold-cocked by some green-haired girl named Gretel. While a dazed Batgirl tries to fight off Gretel, the victims of the strange 338 heist actually attempt to pull Whitaker up. Gretel seems to have some sort of strange drug high, then leaves. Whitaker is safe from his watery doom, and Batgirl walks off and sulks in a derelict alley. What could make a parent do this? Before all this happened, Batgirl opened the door to see her mother. Babs Sr. wants to come in. Babs Jr. says no. Elysia says sure, but Babs Jr. suggests the park. On the walkover, they make small talk about the killing joke and Elysia. Babs orders two muffins, her mother asks about Jim and how he is doing, and Babs doesn't want to tell her how hurt he was. I guess Sarah Essen never existed, since Jim never remarried. Babs Sr. is moving back to Gotham. Babs feels awkward and makes an excuse to get out of there, leaving a guilt trip as a tip. At Gotham PD, Jim calls a Detective McKenna, who happens to be crocheting with barbells. Gordon needs McKenna to come back in because of this new Gretel. McKenna is more than happy to do it since Batgirl is involved, and McKenna seems to have a strange new fetish. 
Later, at Babs's and Alicia's apartment, Alicia tries to talk to Babs, but Babs is distracted with a news bulletin about Wayne's new plan to beautify Gotham and all of the protest- protesters that have showed up on the front steps of a condemned building. Babs is horrified to see a spray-painted 338 on the building. Batgirl races toward the building, and Bruce Wayne gets into a limo, going towards the same destination. Unfortunately, Wayne's driver says 338 and drives into a wall. Gretel, now sporting pink hair, appears, and Batgirl swoops down to take Jimmy out before he can cause any more damage. Batgirl has high confidence until Gretel tells her that Jimmy was not her A-plan. Unfortunately for Batgirl, Bruce Wayne turns on her with a crowbar and a desire to say 338. To be continued. Oh, my word. Okay, where to begin? Well, let's start at the beginning. How much focus have we put on this so-called miracle that Babs encountered? A lot, right? And here we have the miracle revealed in one. That's right, one. Word box. Why should we even care about it when it is dismissed, put on paper, and then dismissed so quickly? And then we have the actual story. To be honest, it is poorly written, and I had trouble reading it. The beginning is all over the place, and I think that this is a poorly written entrance for a villain and each new villain that pops out you should somehow make us uh, care about it and really answer the question what does it matter you know why should I care but that doesn't really seem to happen she lays the smack down on Babs has some sort of orgasmic experience which I would just like to foreshadow is never explained in number six and then she just walks away the interaction between Gretel and Babs is all over the place and is almost treated as some sort of strange friendship. We barely learn anything about the villain except that she likes flashy hair colors and she, for whatever reason, can't feel any pain. So she's jealous of all the pain that Batgirl feels and that she actually inflicts upon Batgirl. She tells Batgirl that she's keeping her from her appointed task, but, you know, what the heck is it? Shouldn't we at least know what her motives are? At least... The turn of events at the end of the issue are somewhat intriguing with Bruce all of a sudden under under the control of Gretel, but, you know, that's about it. And, you know, let's talk about Babs Sr. She turns up on Babs' doorstep expecting some sort of warm welcome. She tries to make small talk in all the wrong ways. I don't know what's worse, finding out that Jim was never married to Sarah Essen or reading the conversation between the two Barbaras. The relationship and writing is forced. I mean, insert awkward dialogue about carbon take here. It's attempted to make us care about something that we will not care about because it is so random. Again, why do we need to be thrown into a pot of drama when we have a strong character that could carry a book on her own? But with her mother moving to Gotham, it looks like we're going to have a lot more of this to look forward to. And then, of course, we have McKenna. You know, at least I can say that I am intrigued, but I'm also concerned with this Batgirl fetish. And Dustin over at TBU.net, he made fun of me because uh, I called it a fetish. But just why is she so obsessed with Batgirl? Like, this seems like a... I'm trying to relate this to another person who had an obsession. Eddie Brock, I could think of having an obsession with uh, Spider-Man when he ruined him. I'm thinking of the animated series. This is just, I remember when Spider-Man first comes into his apartment and then he looks and there's like all these images of Spider-Man plastered all over. That's the first one that comes to mind, but this is just strange. I don't, what does she expect? Is this just because of um, her partner being shot and she still blames Batgirl, which again is going over the deep end? She doesn't like, maybe she doesn't like capes, capes as in using that as a synecdoche to mean a superhero. But yeah, she doesn't like people, vigilantes. I don't know. How is this all going to turn out? And please don't let me forget about Baz's problem with bullets and guns. She had such a rough go of things in the first issue. Do you remember that? That was like the big thing that everyone was practically talking about when that came out. But now apparently bullets and guns don't face her. And in my opinion, I feel like that's absolutely ridiculous. I don't suffer from PTSD. I don't know someone who does suffer from PTSD. But I feel like it does not go away just like that. 
At least we know that Batgirl knows Bruce Wayne is Batman, and it did remind me of the Silver Age, the way she does her forced acting by calling him Mr. Wayne and telling him to stay back, something that she probably would have done if uh, her father was there before her father knew her identity. But just a weak issue, a weak villain entrance, and new villains... You really, they really need to pack a wall up because we are so in love with these villains that we have had for such a long time. Uh, you know, like Joker or Two Face. If I'm, if I can jump over, uh, Venom or Green Goblin or Lizard or Doctor Octopus. We're in love with these, and they have withstood the test of time. That the new villains, they seem dull in comparison, and the great villains. I know, like Professor Pig, people loved him, and I can't really speak from experience. I didn't read too much of him, but there was something great about him. He was a new villain, but people love him, and they still talk about him. And I think even writers are afraid to pick that up and and, and use him because he is so well loved. So. I don't know what what makes a new villain someone that we are generally intrigued with. Was I intrigued with Mirror? I don't know. I don't. I just don't know if that would have been the way I would have started off the run. I think as it stands right now, I do like the Mirror better than than Gretel certainly. But this series of Batgirl seems such like it stands in such stark contrast to the Silver. <sighs> the Silver Age of Batgirl when she was fighting mobsters and, you know, regular, like, uh, Joes. And, and even then, you know, I complain, I say, could she get a supervillain at one point? But now it's like, let's load all these supervillains and, well, maybe she could actually use her smarts to bring down some sort of mob gang or something. But I guess we have yet to see. So, four out of ten bats for me on this one. Okay, let's move over to bat birds of prey sorry about that birds of prey number five choke point writer Dwayne Swarzynski layouts Jesus Saez finishes Javier Pina and colors Jun Chung as the issue opens Poison Ivy Starling Black Canary and Katana are in downtown Gotham completely disoriented and missing one member of their troop Ivy notices that Starling's hand and shoulder are both better while Starling doesn't really remember her hand being messed up at all Starling doesn't really have time to think about it as a group of troops shows up. They start fighting the troops in their own special ways when Dinah realizes that Batgirl is with them and is no longer there. Starling agrees with this. Katana's sword, I mean husband, confirms it, but Ivy believes that they are all baddie because she and Batgirl are not BFF. As the birds stand around and contemplate what has happened, the police show up and they scatter with plans to meet at an abandoned shop. At the shop, Dinah decides that they will all take 24 hours to rest and regroup and then meet again on the roof of the R.H. Kane building. Dinah writes it on Starling's arm, but Ivy writes it on her own. None of that chemical crap in her arm, people. Starling clears her head with some whiskey and shooting at a range. She thinks about her Uncle Earl and his thoughts on paranoia. People really are out there to get you, you know. She makes her way to an apartment building to see a reluctant June. Friend? Lover? I'm not sure. Dino waits for Batgirl atop a roof, asking if she truly was with the birds. Batgirl says that's crazy talk because she will not be affiliated with the birds. Dinah tells her to forget it and goes to a private dojo to work off her frustrations. Katana somehow finds her and spars with her. Since Dinah seems distracted, Katana asks what is up. Dinah feels alone, even though she is always surrounded by people. She mentions, mentions a past boyfriend, then regrets it since Katana just lost her husband. At least she has a friend like Ivy. <sighs> and speaking of Ivy, she is in her grassy lair, connecting to the ground or releasing toxins or medicating. I really don't know. When a man in a business suit with a briefcase appears, Ivy goes to attack before she recognizes the man. She says that the hero biz is working for her and that she will still honor the arrangement made between them. He leaves the briefcase with her, a briefcase that emits a funny green glow. Later that day, Dinah is in a Gotham diner when she sees a newspaper article for a search continuing for Eric Beatner, 28, agent, father. This triggers something for Dinah and she calls Trevor, wanting to get that drink, right now. 
That night, on the roof of the R.H. Kane building, where Katana, Dinah, Ivy, and say what? Batgirl meet. There is some tension between Batgirl and Ivy, but there is a bigger problem at hand. The missing Eric Beatner was the man who exploded in issue three after Ivy did her toxic seduction. Dinah's theory is that Choke, the leader of the cleaners, makes ordinary citizens into sleeper agents. Dinah wants to follow one of them all the way back to Choke and then find some answers. But wait a minute, where is Starling? Starling is on top of the Finger River Bridge as she sees it written on her arm in Dinah's scrawl and applauding herself for actually being on time. Just as she is considering why Canary picked such an open spot, agents appear and open fire. Canary set me up! I guess Uncle Earl was right. There are people after Starling. As she wonders how they found her location, she leaps into the water below and gets shot in the hand and leg. I actually don't really know what to say about this issue. Uh, to be honest, I had a little difficulty uh, with it the first time that I read it. I can believe that the birds would find themselves in a different place, but how can some of them remember particular details and what was going on and others cannot? For example, Poison Ivy remembers Starling being injured but cannot remember that Barker was working with them. How does that make sense? Is that selective memory loss right there? Where are these soldiers coming from? With whom are they affiliated? And that's, I guess, both of them. Both the soldiers at the very beginning and then the ones, um, sort of the, the, the mercs that go after Starling. I find it both a little strange and good, uh, if, if you can believe that, that we find out more about the individual members in this issue. We learn the most about Starling and Black Canary, it seems, asking questions about one and gaining sympathy for the other. Uh, and then, you know, about Poison Ivy, we seem to really get suspicious. So it's good that we learn more about them, but it's just a strange setting for it since we, as readers and the birds, are confused as to the events. So, actually, how do we know that what we're learning about these people is real? I do wonder why Canary calls Trevor. You know, this scene should have been followed up with another scene uh, to make it more meaningful, like them actually meeting. She doesn't even mention him when the other birds meet at the RHK building. Oh, wow. And then Batgirl is being mean again. This seems like the Batgirl of number one rather than what we saw in the previous issue. But then how did Batgirl find out about the meeting place? This doesn't really make sense. Unless ba Black Canary was tweeting the location on her Twitter. I, I do at least like Batgirl's personality during the meeting. She is sarcastic and both ignores and attacks Poison Ivy. I do like getting to see more of Starling and what she's thinking. We learn a lot about her, and the ending certainly is a cliffhanger, though I don't really see how this all connects back to the cleaners and choke. And, you know, that is my main problem with this issue. I understand that it's supposed to be confusing, since even the birds don't know what's going on, but I wish I knew how this all connected. And I feel like there should have been more of an ending dealing with the cleaners, not Starling's shady past. And, and a small detail, you know, the agent that was called missing in the newspaper was Caucasian, so I'm a little confused as to why he looks African-American in issues number one and two of this series. But looking back again, I guess it's just a darker coloring since he is in that weird um, suit that he's got. Uh, but not the not the greatest of these issues, but the, it's, still, it's still a strong series, still probably... One of my favorites, if not my favorite series right now in the DC News, 7.5 out of 10 birds. And finally, Huntress number 5 of 6, Crossbow at the Crossroads, part 5. Writer Paul Levitz, penciler Marcus Toe, inker Richard Zajac, colorist Andrew Dollhouse with Alan Pasalacqua. The issue opens with a beautiful contour of Huntress and the backdrop of Amalfi, once a rich fortress, now only a tourist trap. Here's where the chairman is staying. Huntress sends a speedboat filled with dynamite towards the docks in order to create a distraction. As some armed men run off, Helena, dressed part gypsy, part cleaning woman, assaults a guard with ammonia and gets into the lowest level of the fortress. As she ascends, she speaks of role-playing and that one must play the role so well that it fools oneself. Sometimes Helena forgets who she really is. At the top of the fortress, the chairman is speaking to his son and being served by a young woman. The chairman tells his son to go to the Villa Moretti prepared on Capri, that the lion and its pack from issue two will protect him, and that if Huntress does show up, she will prove her weak gender. Elsewhere, Alessandro and Christina are having red wine and talking about Helena. While they are reticent to help her, they understand the good she will accomplish in sending the other traffickers to hell with Moretti. 
An explosion sounds above them. Nearing her goal, Huntress takes out a group of ceremonial honor guard with sleeping gas and quick moves. The chairman goes into a safe room and tells the lion and his pack not to fail again in killing the mask. Running out of gadgets, Helena readies herself for the final room. The gas does not work on the pack since the lion throws it out of the window. It's deja vu all over again with lion's hands gripped around Helena's neck. Luckily for Helena, oh my word lucky, she is near a European outlet, plugs in her last trick, and uses the nodes to shock Lion into submission. With the Lion out of the picture, Huntress quickly incapacitates the rest of the pack and comes inside the safe room. The chairman, while frightened, tells her that the authorities will be able to do nothing, nor the world court. Did he ever think of the legal repercussions when he killed the young girl that no longer amused him? How about when he sent shiploads of women to a living hell? Their families came begging to be helped, but he took everything from them. She is not interested in the law. She is interested in justice. An arrow flies, and the body of the chairman is carried away. Right off the top, top of the issue, top pro of this review, I love that first page with the outline of Huntress serving as the border of the panel. It is just so inspired. You could almost say that it is simplistic, but it is just, oh, it is genius in its simplicity. In comparison to the rest of the series, which has, you know, it's it's definitely been slowly and steadily been been building up, this issue seems to progress rather rapidly i mean we discovered that moretti's out of the picture and dead which is actually kind of shocking to me because i thought the girls wouldn't have gone that far the trafficking at least on this end you know in italy may start to dissipate uh so like we get all these details really really thrown at us this issue doesn't really show us how Helena prepares for this big mission, but it does go step by step through the actual mission. It was great to see everything come together and then, you know, the intermissions within added uh, to the minor characters. And this is just different from the previous issues because we always saw the setup to the mission and then very brief snapshot of the actual mission. So this is kind of a change. We really hate the chairman just from the few scenes he's in, and we can really relate to Alessandro and Christina and their reservations. And it is great to see the lion and his pack again, rather than just another group of bad guys. So it is great to keep, see consistency. I love seeing Huntress use all the gadgets. And, you know, again, I begin to see Batman being her father. Even more with her remark, Daddy did say objects are meant to be used. I mean, she's got all these gadgets? Who else? I mean, yeah, her father is Batman. This is... I'm... I'm just waiting for this to be revealed. I did find it a little unbelievable that Huntress would use a gadget that needs a three-pronged plug, because that kind of seems a little inconvenient. And then, you know, she happens to get choked right next to one. Yeah, that's a little convenient for my taste. Overall, Helena is really smart in this issue, using covert and overt means when the case calls for it, and knowing she can't do this barehanded. At the end, we see the true character of Helena finally coming through, and, you know, I, I do think that it's a little disappointing just because we had a chance for a different kind of Helena here with, with better hero or heroic ethics. One comment that she makes that is quite curious is in regards to sometimes not knowing who she really is. I mean, she does use disguises, but it's not as if she is clayface and completely transforms into a different identity. So I just want wonder, you know, what does this mean? Does she feel lost and, and not really know much about her past and thus, you know, her comments in previous issues about her secrets? Or is she just kind of losing herself and in an inner struggle of some sort? I just don't know, don't know. But a uh, good issue, solid issue, quicker, I think, than uh, several of the ones before it. 9.5 out of 10 cannolis. Well, that is it for the reviews. Next up is Babs in the Tube, the segment where I examine an individual appearance of Barbara Gordon in the media, whether it be TV or film. And currently I am watching the 1966 Batman TV series. Here we have episode 107, season 3, episode 13, The Bloody Tower. And this is kind of funny. The Bloody Tower, you would think, obviously, is like there's blood on it. And if you remember from last time, Robin was in a bit of a pickle in the tower. But then, well, it was actually a bridge. But uh, it's funny because at the end, uh, the commissioner says, let's get out of this bloody tower. So it's kind of a, a play on words. So. Uh, it, it aired December 7th, 1967. 
Starring Adam West as Bruce Wayne slash Batman, Burt Ward as Dick Grayson slash Robin, Neil Hamilton as Commissioner Jim Gordon, Stafford Rep as Chief O'Hara, Alan Napier as Alfred Pennyworth, and of course Yvonne Craig as Barbara Gordon slash Batgirl. Guest starring Rudy Valley as Lord Marmaduke Fogg, Lynn Peters as Prudence, Harvey Jason as Scudder, Larry Anthony as Diggy, Aleta Rotel as Daisy, Nanette Turner as Sheila, Stacey Gregg as Rosamund, Lindley Lawrence as Kit, Glennis Johns as Lady Penelope, Pea Soup, and Gilchrist Stewart as The Bobby. Escaping Fogg's Fog in the Winch Room, the dynamic duo, accompanied by Alfred, race to the Fogg estate to save Batgirl, who is still chained up in the dungeon and about to be finished off by Fogg and Pea Soup with some lethal Fogg pellets. Robin arrives at the estate, but is spotted and lured by Lady Prudence to Lord Fogg's hive of African death bees. Meanwhile, Fogg and Pea Soup discover that the lethal Fogg pellets have gone stale, and they rush off to find some more, allowing Batman time to sneak into the dungeon. But he is surprised by the returning Lord, who shoves him downstairs, followed by fresh fog pellets. While both Batman and Batgirl are left to perish in the dungeon, threatened by lethal gas pellets, Robin is stung by the deadly queen African bee and left to die in the girl's dormitory. Well, I'm sure that's a dream come true. Lord Fogg, Lady Peasoup, and the gang plan to forge ahead with the theft of the crown jewels and leave for the Tower of Londinium. Fortunately, with the help of Alfred and the unexpected arrival of Aunt Harriet and Londinium, oh boy, convenience, the tables finally turn. Robin, with the use of an African death bee antidote pill, I had no idea those things existed, is saved from bee death and rushes outside to the Batmobile to greet Alfred. Meanwhile in the dungeon, Batman disperses the poisonous fog with anti-lethal fog bat spray. Oh boy, gotta love this. Saves Batgirl and uses her rope to perform an Indian rope trick to escape through an overhead grating. En masse, the dynamic trio arrive in time to foil Fogg's plans to swipe the jewels. Following the ensuing bat fight, Fogg, fearing apprehension, tries to escape using his fog pipe, but the Cape Crusader thwarts this attempt with his pipe of fog bat reverser, and he and Superintendent Watson take the entire group into custody. Later, back at Gotham City Police Headquarters, the dynamic duo leave Gordon's office and sees the Catwoman immediately dive into an elevator. Wow. Number one, the gadgets in this episode were ridiculous. I mean, you've got the pipe of fog bat reverser. You've got the anti-lethal fog bat spray. You have the um, anti-African death bee antidote pill. I... Oh my gosh, where do they come up with these things? The African bee, oh my word, it's like this giant beehive. And then there is this tripwire, and the trip, you would imagine a tripwire to be very thin and out of sight and everything, and but it's like a white tripwire. And then it's connected to a, a sign that says that it is a tripwire, and there Robin goes over it. And then this bee comes out, and it, oh, friends, I hope that you look at this, you, you see this episode. I was a little confused as to why Batgirl didn't warn Batman earlier when he actually started his descent to the dungeon. You know, was it really that foggy that she could not see him when he was two steps above? I mean, she's she's looking at him. She obviously notices he's, he's there, but then she waits a long time and it's too late. And I don't know. I guess it was plot convenience. I did like the rope trick. I thought that was funny, just him using his, his Indian incantation to get it to levitate. I don't think gravity would be too happy about that is all I have to say. But it's a Zanny episode, and probably, obviously, I've not seen you know the first two seasons uh, too regularly, but this was a three-parter, so I found that pretty um, interesting. Okay, next up is Shipper Spotlight. I love Shippers. Let me tell you about shippers. Get over your own shipping bullshit. Let, let, let me tell you about shippers. <laughs> get over get get over your own shipping bullshit. Shipper. I love shippers. 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 Let me tell you about shippers. Stop talking about that. Ship, ship, shippers. I love shippers. Dick and Babs. Dick, Dick, Dick and Babs. Batman and Cat, Catwoman. There we go. For the shippers, Batman's married to the Joker. To the Joker. There better not be Damien, Seth, 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 Shippers, I'll kill them. Dick and Babs. 
Shipper Spotlight is a segment where, in 120 seconds or less, I pick a couple. I talk about the first hint of romance, and then I tell you whether this couple is hot or not. This episode we have Batman and Zatanna, and please note that this Shipper Spotlight is based on the DC animated universe. First hint of romance. In the episode Zatanna, she had developed a close relationship with Bruce Wayne, who was using the alias John Smith, very uh, inventive there, during the years in which Bruce was traveling the globe, learning skills that later serve him as Batman. Zatanna later comes to Gotham City with her magic show, but finds herself being framed by a criminal magic debunker named Montague Kane. Her efforts to restore her name and stop the villain put her side by side with the Batman and a warmer than normal friendship begins. Zatanna then reappears in a Justice League Unlimited episode titled This Little Piggy. She helps Batman search for the villainous Cersei who has turned Wonder Woman into a pig. Zatanna is apparently aware of Batman's true identity since her last appearance since she says, Bruce, I haven't seen you for so long and knows him well enough to perceive his romantic relationship with Wonder Woman but she seems still to be very good friends with Batman as they often banter. Don't get snippy with me. Zatanna made a short appearance in Batman Beyond in the episode Out of the Past in a collection of pictures that Bruce is looking at on his computer of past loves, alongside Lois Lane, Selena Kyle slash Catwoman, and gag Barbara Gordon. Tan Roto, Zatanna certainly brings out positive aspects of Bruce as compared to his other loves, Cough Cough Catwoman. She's a breath of fresh air, and it could really be good for him to get out of his cave and away from his dark life for a while. Tan Roto, hot or not, hot. Oh boy, Shipper Spotlight, you gotta love it. Remember, I do take suggestions for Shipper Spotlight. I've got a, a, a short list, um, kind of always building on it. If I see really random couples, I kind of put them in there. And yes, it doesn't always have to be comics. It could definitely be from... Uh, the TV universe as well. My literature recommendation, I'm going to have to go back. You know, I've been doing comics because I've been in like a really big comic reading mood. The Hunger Games, so an actual book. And a student let me borrow this. The Hunger Games by Suzanne Collins. I cannot tell you how good this book is. And let me tell you people, the main character, Katniss Everdeen, If you hate Twilight, and the reason you hate Twilight, one of the reasons, I guess, is because the main character is weak. Now, let's just say that I do enjoy Twilight for its entertainment purposes, but if I were to ever compare, I feel like I've talked about this with you, but if, if I ever compare it to Jane Eyre or Jane Austen, I suppose, it would never stand up, right? Because Bella, is she's just a weak, a weak feminine heroine. Compared to that... Katniss is like the complete opposite, such a strong person that doesn't need, you know, a man to survive, though she is battling these feelings between two different people. One is less prominent uh, in this first book. But, man, what is it about? It's Let's just say it's a future, a future where there some catastrophe happens and America is now just this little, this small area called Pan Am, and it is divided into 13 districts, and in the center is the capital. And the capital basically has absolute control over everyone, and at one point in the past there was an uprising, uh, but they shut it down, and they left District 13, basically they destroyed District 13, but they constantly show images to remind them, and to also remind the people of these different districts that they are under the foot of the capital. They have these games every year, these hunger games. And a a, a boy and a girl under the age of 18 is picked at random, just like a lottery. I won't go into the lottery system. And then they duke it out. So there are 24 people in an arena. And the arena is different each year. And there are a lot of things that the capital can control so they could like make rain or fire so they have a lot of control over it but they fight to the death and the person who wins um, basically gets lots of food for their district for a year and they're basically set for life and uh, wow it, it was just intense and it's I don't really want to 
ruin what's going on. And I'm currently reading the second one, but I ate it up in, in three days, and it just really resonates with me as a Latin teacher because it is so reminiscent of the Roman Empire, where the capital would be Rome. And they had these districts, these different provinces around them that when you were a province, you basically had no freedom, and you always had to, you know, do what the empire asked of you, and you were always under their nail, and you had their currency, and you had their religion, and things like that. And even, you know, different provinces, obviously, in the Roman Empire would have different um, roles to play. Uh, they would produce different things for the empire, obviously, depending on their situation in the world. And this is certainly true of the different districts where each of them makes something in particular. District 11, a lot of grain, so they did a lot of heart weight. Yeah, they did a lot of har a, a lot of harvesting. District Twelve, which is where our heroine um, is, is mainly coal mining, and it's just great. And and you should see all these other classical parallels with names. I mean, the names of the people in the in the actual capital or people belonging to that that main government are very classical. You have there's a Caesar, um, there's a Seneca, you know, all these great things. And then you know the people. Obviously, Katniss, that's not a, a, a name that you would normally associate. And that's how provinces were. Obviously, they had the names of their actual nation when they were, because they were still in their own little country. And then, you know, these games being like gladiator games, all for the enjoyment of, of the rich. And the rich are just, like, ridiculous in what they do. And they have these great feasts. And in this book, too... I was just like, oh my gosh, it's totally Rome because they actually drink this particular, I don't know, it's not really syrup, but some sort of liquid that makes them throw up so that they can keep eating. And one of the characters says that she had it, um, she drank it four times already, like she's thrown up four times already so that she could keep going. And that's what the Romans did. You know, the banquets, well, the haves, right? The have-nots would not have that ability. But the haves had these huge banquets, and they would drink olive oil to throw up to keep going. Man. But it is so, it is great. And it's good. It's targeted more for the teen audience, so it's certainly not inappropriate. But, you know, I, I would say, like, 14, 14 and up, certainly, because there are some disturbing things that go on, obviously, gladiator games. But it is it is really good, and it is not Twilight. So if you need a recommendation like that, then I will give it to you. Well, I think this was a shorter episode, but I hope you enjoyed it, nevertheless. Uh, as always, please send any questions or comments to Backroll to Oracle at gmail.com. Continue to sign the petition to get Backroll Year One back into production. We've already made, you know, such a great impact. And now that we have SBFF, it'd be great if we could uh, push it even more. Uh, you can follow me on Twitter at Batgirl to Oracle. You can find my page on Facebook. Once again, thanks to Mile High Comics for sponsoring Batgirl to Oracle, the Barbara Gordon podcast. Thanks also to TV.com for the episode summary for The Bloody Tower. <sighs> well, I will see you in March, and I uh, can't wait for the Dwayne Swarzynski episode. So please pick up a good book and read, and read Hunger Games. Until next time, fly on, Babs lovers. Just plain Barbara Gordon masquerading for a lark as she rides into the night on her special Batgirl cycle. Who knows? Is the dynamic duo destined to become the triumphant trio? Only time will tell us more about this dazzling dare doll. Batgirl! Ah, I love a happy ending, don't you?